if you're in a predicament and if you feel isolated, the only way out is by taking action. You know, if we're trapped in our thoughts and constantly, you know, neglecting ourselves because we're overthinking, we say I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, it really keeps you in that rut. That's Jahin Tanvir, just starting his 20s. He's already a multi-award winning youth advocate, policy advisor, and keynote speaker. A man living out his passion, giving a voice to those who deserve to be heard. The fact that we've gone through all those lived experiences and you know, issues, we have a responsibility to facilitate for the future generations. Jahin is a first generation migrant who came to Australia from Bangladesh in the early 2000s. For some of his younger years, he was one of the only children of colour in his school and his neighbourhood, facing racism and alienation that caused him severe anxiety. Straight up, I faced every single thing that you might expect from being discriminated for your skin colour, for the language that you speak, not understanding the culture. From as far back as he can remember, Jahin felt like an outcast who didn't fit in in Australia. He was never comfortable in his own skin and for a long time wanted desperately to be someone other than himself. So I just felt so isolated, felt like, why am I so different? Why couldn't I be like everyone else? The worst part was he was convinced no one could ever know how he really felt inside for fear of being rejected by his own family. Jahin says the culture he hails from has been critical of mental health issues, quick to judge those who are struggling and prone to labeling people crazy. So he buried his distress with everything he had. I just felt like I just had to keep my mouth shut, try to deal with it as much as I possibly could. A lot of the times I just thought it was my fault. This is a story for anyone who's ever felt like a fish out of water with nowhere to go and no one to talk to. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organisation promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. Jahin, how old were you when you moved to Australia? Um, so I was two years old when I moved to Australia. What stands out in your memory from that time? I think my memories just moving to Australia and the whole migration experience in general um, had a lot of learning curves. Obviously, as somebody who comes from a South Asian background, you would expect there's a lot of, you know, racism, discrimination that followed that, um, I guess, story. It's a very commonality. And I can tell you straight up, I faced every single thing that you might expect from being discriminated for your skin colour, for the language that you speak, not understanding the culture initially. It was a very you know, detrimental time period, but one that I learned a lot from and I hope to carry on um, you know, in the future. So do you remember getting here? I mean, two's very, very young. What were sort of your, your first memories of being in Australia that you can recall? Well, my first memories, honestly, were just the first house we were in. Um, I think we moved to Western Sydney. Um, at the time, it wasn't as Eurocentric or um, ethnocultural as 
you know, it is right now. Um, it's known for its culture and multiculturalism, but at that time, it was quite, you know, whitewashed um, yeah. in the sense where I felt like, you know, I would go to preschool, for instance, or childcare, and it would be completely different from what I was used to or who I was. And so my initial memories were just feeling very isolated, feeling very diff uh, different, feeling like I had to stick to myself, um, just as being my own strength, you know, being the only person that can understand myself. Were you the really only kid of colour? Um, from memory, yes. Um, for the first few years before I entered school, I, I can't remember anybody else that was of colour or, or of South Asian background. Um, but until when you reached school, that's when I first started, you know, meeting more people, multicultural communities. So first getting around seeing that you're the only kid of colour on the block, or how did that used to make you perceive yourself? Or were you conscious of that difference even at that young age? Yeah, look, there was a lot of negative um, connotations, you know, a lot of negative self-talk that came because, you know, when you're different and when you're young, all you want to do is fit in that yeah. social pressure of, you know, popularity is such a you know, yeah, totally. fundamental currency at that age. Uh -huh. Yeah, it did feel quite destructive, quite, you know, um, isolating at times. But, you know, I feel like those were the days that I felt were useful in what I've become now and um, what I value now as well. How old were you when you were really feeling those feelings for the first time? So I'd say I was like about eight or nine. Um, I think when I first moved into primary school, um, you know, when you're in that school environment, you're not just exposed to people your age, you're exposed to people older than you all throughout, you know, you're five, you're six, and being a young person um, of colour, it was just very intimidating. Yeah. You know, I would feel like I would have to stick either to myself or to the two, three friends that I knew were of, you know, multicultural backgrounds. So I just felt so isolated, felt like, why am I so different? Why couldn't I be like everyone else, you know? And were you experiencing racism at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a lot of racism in terms of, you know, remarks being made against you, um, a lot of, you know, stereotypical words thrown at you, um, and just, just very subtle ones as well. Even when you're on public transport, for instance, the way people would look at you was just very uneasy at times. Um, so, yeah, racism was something that, caused a lot of distress in my life. And what effect did that have on you? How did you receive that? Well, quite negatively, to say the least. I developed a bit of like a crippling social anxiety uh, from a young age where I just felt, you know, the ability to talk to people, communicate, open up was just not my thing. I just felt, you know, I didn't have the capacity or people would even take me seriously. So whenever I would go into like a situation with more than one person, you know, feeling nervous, feeling, you know, like my, my heart was about to explode in my chest. And that was something that carried on until I say the end of high school. Um, and so, yeah, social anxiety was something that really did hinder my ability just to make friends and socialize as a young person. It was that partly because you felt like you were already being judged before you began the interaction? Yeah, for sure. I think my lived experience of being judged physically by the color of my skin or the language that I spoke or the culture I came from 
you know, it was always at the back of my mind. Even if I didn't know the individual, I would always assume that they, you know, isolate me or, you know, have preconceived notions about who I was before I would even open my mouth or, you know, allow the substance of my personality to even, you know, be shared to them. How much do you think that was always actually the reality and, and not just in your own mind? Well, now that I reflect back on it, I'm, you know, I would like to confidently think that it was mainly me just writhing my own thoughts and overthinking about those situations. Um, but at that time with the lived experience that I had, obviously being a migrant, being a person of, of a skin color who's darker than yeah, it didn't normality. Come, it didn't come from nowhere, obviously. You did have those experiences. But I just wonder having such a hard time, especially at such a young age, and then having those thoughts and feelings become ingrained, and then you would have like a reflex reaction before that was even necessarily happening further down the line, but still ready for it to happen, I suppose. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It was just a lot of ingrained um, experiences, which I just internalized. And I just thought, this is what what my life is going to be. You know, I'm going to have to um, live with it. People are going to have these preconceived notions. I can't change it. That's why just let me allow this social anxiety to overwhelm me. So what did you do with all of those feelings? Did you feel like you could share that with anyone or did were you ashamed of it? I think I was definitely ashamed of it and quite embarrassed in the sense that the culture I come from, so from the South Asian community, talking about mental health or anything related to your feelings or emotions is and was and I feel like, unfortunately, will continue to be a massive stigma and taboo. People in this community don't really talk about mental health because the connotations are, oh, you're crazy or, you know, you're messed up in the head. And yep. those are the negative connotations from a young age we're exposed to and we hear. So we sort of internalize or compartmentalize any struggles we may be going through. So during my experience, I just felt like I just had to keep my mouth shut, try to deal with it as much as I possibly could. A lot of the times I just thought it was my fault because I'm different. That's, you know, an obstacle that I had to, you know, deal with. Um, but essentially, you just have to deal with the community you come from. And I just felt disadvantaged in that sense. And I just felt like this is how I have to live my life. Were you conditioned to feel that way based on the way your parents would speak about mental health or other people in the community and how they would talk about it? Or where did you pick up these things from? Because obviously, you weren't actually in Bangladesh. Yeah, for sure. I think it, it extends further than my you know, family or my parents in general, even um, the community. Every time we would have get togethers and I would hear things like, oh, X and Y is suffering from this. And other people in the community would make comments about it in a very derogatory or negative term. And so, you know, as a child, you sort of absorb everything. And in that sense, I just thought, oh, so this is something we don't talk about. Yep. Why? Because you're going to receive all this sort of slander and negative uh -huh. um, implications around it. Yeah. So I think that was something that just ingrained in me very deeply. So culturally, very much the attitude that if you speak up about going through those problems, then basically you can't handle life and you're not up to scratch is sort of the message that's being sent to you as a young person. Yeah, and it's quite drastic as well. Like people would just say, oh, that person's crazy. You know, just maybe move away from them or don't um, associate yourself from... Um, that person and so you know when you're going through mental health, health struggles that's the last thing you want you know and so that's what i felt like if i ever opened up i would be treated in that way yeah. and i don't want to feel isolated you know that's like a very big fear 
So how did you hide it? Because I'm guessing you would have had to have worn a mask. You couldn't have been going around showing how you were feeling all the time. Otherwise, you, people would have picked up on it and you, maybe you would have had that reaction that you were afraid of. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is just suffering and silence, really. Um, you just really had to um, pretend and be fake in the sense that, you know, the social anxiety or the um, struggles that you're going through, you're really internalizing it trying to be somebody else, trying to, you know, pretend that, that those issues aren't affecting you. And obviously when you're around people, you've got the adrenaline, you've got the, you know, sort of energy to fake it and be someone else. But then as soon as you'd get back home and you'd be alone, you'd understand, oh, wait, this is mentally draining. I don't feel like I'm fitting in. I don't understand my identity at all. So around people, it would be quite okay because you're faking it. You're trying to be someone you're not. You're trying to fit in. You're trying to, you know, copy mannerisms and etiquettes of the people that are, you know, popular and just to fit in. Um, but then when you become alone and come back home or in a situation where you're just with your thoughts, it would be insanely exhausting. Mm. And, you know, and you quite, must, you yeah. must have been conscious of just holding it together all the time. And that in itself is, is so exhausting because how can you focus on life or take a deep breath and relax if you hate being in your own skin? Yeah, you know, one of the things is, you know, you can't express your vulnerability. Weakness is something that we don't talk about at all. And so during that time, you had to sort of hold it in and just not talk about it at all. Because again, the last thing you want to do is become even more isolated than you already are physically. Of course. If you start talking about it, you'll be more isolated. Yeah, so you feel totally trapped by that. Where did that lead you? Because as we know holding on to these emotions and bottling everything up for such a long time, it doesn't just go away and fix itself, unfortunately. So did that come to a head at some point? Well, for sure. I think there were a few times where you just feel so overwhelmed, where you feel like, is this ever going to change? Am I going to feel comfortable in my own skin? Am I going to feel comfortable when I approach someone and just want to talk to them and have a conversation? So there were definitely some periods of my life, um, especially in high school and, you know, end of primary school, where I just felt so overwhelmed. Um, there were times when I tried to access help and just ask people for advice, um, but I just, it wasn't doing it for me because I just felt like I was, you know, superficially disadvantaged because of who I was. And if I wanted to change it, it would make no difference. And I think that came down to having a lack of a good support system around me that I can communicate with and talk to and share my, you know, struggles or stories that I had. Um, and yeah, I think just the lack of that environment really did hurt that situation. So where did you start to find support eventually? Well, I think eventually my, my story sort of took a turn, I think in about year nine, year 10, when I had, you know, an established you know, close group of friends. And I think there was a conversation that we had this one odd day where we just started opening up. We just started talking about the situation that we would go through in our life or the situation we were in high school. And just that vulnerability and understanding that, hey, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one going through this predicament or felt this way or these emotions. There's people that I grew up with that say that suffered with the same things, but none of us spoke about it. Yeah. And I think that realization was a massive change for me. 
and just my mentality around the concept of healthcare and, and mental well-being and just mental health in general. Um, and I think that was a very eye-opening conversation there. And did you bring it up with your parents at some point or did it come up? Were there any sort of heated arguments over this sort of thing? Because obviously you developed a pretty strong view based off your own personal experience and that counteracts the cultural view. So have there been discussions about that? I would imagine there must have been. Well, to tell you the truth, there hasn't really been anything in terms of my parents and the conversation there, um, mainly around the idea that you know I don't want to you know, worry them as much. But on the flip side, it's made me be more self-responsible and um, take initiative when you get mental health services if I need it, um, speaking to fellow friends and just opening up to them when I need, when I do feel overwhelmed. Um, and I think my parents understand that, that, you know, late night talks over the phone or going out with my friends when I need a break. Um, and I tell them, you know, it's for my mental health or even working out, going to the gym, even if it's after work and after uni, they understand that and okay. they've communicated it's for mental health specifically. So have so they, have they sense, come along then? In that conversation. In that sense, have they come along and come around to more of an understanding of the, the necessity of looking after your mental health? Yeah, I think in the recent years, they definitely have. Um, of mental health and young people and multicultural communities in general um, and how it's, you know, really, you know, increased recently. And I think a combination of that and me just communicating that, hey, I need to work out at this time. Why am I going at this time for my mental health? Or I need a break right now. Why am I doing this? Because for my mental health, I feel overwhelmed. Um, so I think they do understand that now um, and they have come around. But still, I think there's a lot more conversation and dialogue that needs to be had especially for other families or other community members that are still suffering in silence because you know i feel like i'm privileged that my parents are open-minded in that sense and understand the changes but there's still a lot more that needs to be happening especially with all the internalized fears that a lot of you know migrant kids have did you ever wish that you were someone else and that you were white I don't even like to admit it, but yes, many times, especially in primary school. I remember instances where, you know, we'd play games during um, school hours or um, during computer classes. And every time we'd have to create an avatar, I can remember every single time I've chosen the skin color of, of being white. I would never choose someone or put my avatar as somebody of color or anything. It would always be white. The names I would choose for my avatar would always be someone who would be accepted in Australian society. I would never use my name. I would always have some sort of other identity. And so, you know, that was quite miserable. But at the same time, I just felt like, hey, I'm still fitting in. I have this other identity I've created yeah. that I can, you know, fit in and not feel like I'm isolated. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's something that's really hard to relate to unless you've been through that yourself. But I'm sure so many millions of young immigrants can definitely relate to how you feel in that regard. So at what point did you start to want to be yourself, and be Jahin and not be someone else? Well, I think it just came to a point where I was just so frustrated. I was just like, is this how I'm going to live the rest of my life? Am I going to live my life wishing that I was someone else? I took a step back and I was just like, I'm not happy. 
And the reason I'm not happy isn't because it's an uncontrollable factor. It's mm. that I'm not taking action and really coming to my own and my identity. And so initially I wanted a bit of an overnight fix where I was like, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to come in, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to talk, I'm going to speak up in class. I'm going to speak to these people as who I am, as my personality. And obviously it wasn't a quick fix, but eventually practicing that on a daily basis, even if it's small increments of saying, hey, if I, if I want to say something in a conversation, I will say it without just keeping in my head. I will say, this is what I feel. This is what we should do. This is my opinion. And so small increments of that and turn to a habit. And eventually it turned into me finding my identity and actually embracing who I was rather than trying to become someone else who society deems is normal and common. And what did you learn about yourself through that process? Well, I learned that if you're in a predicament and if you feel isolated, the only way out is by taking action. You know, if we're trapped in our thoughts and constantly, you know, neglecting ourselves because we're overthinking, we say I'm worthless, I'm not good enough, it really keeps you in that rut. And the intention I had in Gitan was, I don't like this, I'm frustrated, I don't want to continue living in this manner. And that was probably the most positive thought I had in my whole high school experience that obviously translated into taking actions. But prior to that, it was just a lot of negative self-talk. And I think identifying that and taking action was just the key to just, you know, changing my ways and changing how I used to feel. And learning to love yourself, it's such a tough thing to do, especially if that sense hasn't been ingrained in you from such a young age and you have to recondition yourself to think positively about yourself and the world that you inhabit that takes so much work and such a massive shift in your perception to actually get to that point and i suppose as you well know the key is no one else can love you or can give you that that connection that you need and until you have it within yourself yeah, I can imagine that the frustration at feeling like you couldn't live that life, you couldn't be that person just because of the cars that you'd been dealt and then having to overcome that and say, hold on, I'm actually the one deciding this and I have the power to change the way that I think and the way that I feel and that's through my actions. But um, yeah, it takes such a long time to, to, to get to that point and I suppose it must have felt like you crafted yourself into the, the man that you are now. How conscious have you always been of injustice and wanting to fix it? Well, I think I've always had a natural sense of, you know, identifying the issues that exist and trying to reach a solution. But because I was so trapped in my head at a young age, I just felt like I wasn't capable. Yeah, because you can't. I would rely on you, other people to do it. You can't help anyone else unless you're helping yourself and unless you're in a safe enough spot yourself then you can't go and serve how you're serving now obviously absolutely uh like you said i, I always felt like i was incomplete so how can i complete someone else or you know complete the you know the issues that they're going through or fill that hole if i myself are in a situation like this mm. um but i always had ambitions i always felt like I can do more with my life. I can identify this and r reach some sort of solution for someone or, you know, a group of people or a community. Um, but then I think it took me, you know, my senior years of high school and leaving high school to go into university to actually take on that. Um, 
I think when I went to university, that whole university culture, I sort of came to a conclusion that, you know, I'm, I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm isolated anymore or have those feelings again. I want to be who I am. I want to follow the values that I, you know, have been instilled in me for so long and go out there and, you know, really pursue the things that I want to do. And that came to doing a lot of justice work, a lot of, you know, youth advocacy around mental health, healthcare, and particularly for multicultural communities, because I felt like if I went through all those struggles, I don't want another migrant or refugee kid to go through that ever again. So I think a lot of my work and the advocacy that's entailed in that centers around my own experiences and not wanting another kid to you know go through that again. So what would you say to other immigrants who are in that situation and do feel exactly that way? Is there anything you can say to them? Obviously, everyone's situation is different, but if I was a young immigrant and I was listening to this and I was feeling like that, I'd want to know the answers of, okay, so how do I start to make myself feel better and, and be okay living in Australia and in this world? Yeah, I think um, I would have like a blunt advice where the main thing I would say is please get out of your head. I think most of the isolation and issues and sort of imposter syndrome we have is because we're so trapped in our head. We're always caring about what other people would think. And in most scenarios, it's completely disproportionate from what people are actually thinking. Yep. You know, that whole spotlight effect in psychology where we feel like even the smallest things we do, even the smallest, you know, mannerisms we have or the way we look, people are looking at um, to, you know, in a very scrutin- um, you know, scrutinizing and looking in a very close manner, mm. which isn't true. So I would definitely encourage any migrant kid to just follow your values and what your goals are and just turn that into actions. Action does cure fear. And, you know, when we look at the situations that a lot of us are going through with our identity, most of it comes from our lived experience that's sort of internalized in our brains, where we feel like any new opportunity is against us because of how we used to feel or all these thoughts coming back to us. So I would, again, I would say, please get out of your head. That's not a nice space to always be in. Understand that you are who you are because, you know, you you come from a culture or value that, you know, makes you who you are. So again, please get out of your head. What are some practical steps that you can take to start getting out of your head? So is that finding someone to talk to who you can trust and not thinking that, okay, no one's going to understand me? What are some actions that people could take right now to start that process? Yeah, I think one of the most important things that I've found was having a very, you know, comfortable um, support system around you. You know, a lot of the times when you have so many thoughts, you're overwhelmed, you feel like you're alone. But in fact, you'll feel much more ease and relief if you just talk to someone. And it's not just about ranting or you're, you're being a burden. It's just about sharing what's on your mind. And more often than not, you one, you'll find relief in releasing that and all those distressful energies. But also, you'll also possibly find a better solution. Because if you're in your head, you're only thinking about it in a very one-dimensional way. Yeah. You know, you're talking about your own experiences, your own lived experiences, and it's just covering up possible solutions. So if, if you just talk to someone and just open up and say, hey, this is what I'm going through, you can find better solutions and resolutions because they'll come from a different perspective rather than the one that you're, you know, sort of consumed by on a daily basis. And I can say that that definitely holds true for every story we've had on this show. 
that people run into the most amount of trouble when they're trapped in their own mind and there's no one to break them out of it because I think we lie to ourselves, we delude ourselves, we make things out to be worse than they are, we catastrophize, all of these things all inside of our own heads and we have to be ourselves. We've got no place to run, which can be really hard because if you can't turn it off and you're stuck with it, there's no way to deal with it and I think that can bring about real pain and disaster as well potentially so one of the ways of starting to let that out is just as logically as you can imagine it's it's speaking it out speaking it out and sometimes when we talk and you actually hear those thoughts come out of your head and perhaps not sound as you imagined then and you've got someone else there to listen you can even realize that some of the things you've been thinking don't actually make a lot of sense and that perhaps the way you were seeing that isn't actually the reality. It doesn't have to be how you were seeing it. But as long as it's trapped inside your brain and you've got no other perspectives on it, then that can become the truth and overwhelmingly so. And yeah, so it's just so fundamentally key for anyone, no matter who they are, to find someone to talk to. Or if you can't talk, like write it down, like get it out of your head in some way. Because with it just swirling around and around and around and around, it seems like that's where a lot of the problems come from in all kinds of different areas. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's just a release and, you know, the importance of releasing all those, you know, distresses and distresses in your life, um, you'll find a lot of relief in that. How has Australia changed for you since your early teenage years, the way you look at it or the way you walk around it well i've definitely become much more comfortable in you know being an australian and um the environment around i don't feel like i'm a victim anymore um even though you know if you do look at the system there is a lot of oppression against people of color racism still does exist discrimination in educational institutions and workplaces still do exist but my frame of mind is we need to talk about it and take action rather than feeling like somebody else has to do it or feel isolated. And I think that's the mentality that I've taken, um, especially in, in university where I was able to get involved with a lot of youth-led organizations, a lot of charities, not-for-profits. And it's, it's really opened up my mind where, yes, we come from multicultural backgrounds. Yes, we all have lived experience that's diverse and unique in their own respective terms. But we also have a responsibility, you know, the fact that we've gone through all those lived experiences and you know, issues, we have a responsibility to facilitate for the future generations um, to ensure that they don't go through the same identity crisis or identity issues that we had. Um, and so in that way, Australia has changed because it's not a challenge anymore. I see it as an opportunity um, and especially with the growing multicultural community communities around Australia, you know, it's fantastic to see. And, um, you know, I feel like the younger me would be a little bit more prouder um, than they felt at that time about themselves and the community that they're around. And what about the current you? How do you view being an Australian citizen? Well, you know, a part of me is definitely very proud about how far we've come as a multicultural society, about how many stories we're able to tell um, but then there's also a part of me where, you know, I think we still need a lot more done to ensure that, you know, 
people of color or people of diverse communities can feel more included. You know, we're seeing so many people um, talking about racism, you know, there's different campaigns going, there's increased mental health organizations for, ment um, for multicultural communities. So the fact that it's still continuing increasing means there's still, there's still work to be done. But from my frame of reference, from what I've come from and, you know, in the retrospective sense, it has come a long way. But again, it's not perfect. It's not even near perfect. But I'm proud of how far it's come because, you know, I've suffered a lot. A lot of young people of color have suffered. And now it's just about taking those experiences and moving forward. And that's how my mentality is right now at 21. Do you I want to be so solutions oriented. Do you think it's just a matter of time and effort or are there things that need to be done that aren't being done yet or more that needs to be done that you've thought of? I'm telling you, I'm asking you to solve the entire problem now. Uh, <laughs> but is there anything practical that you think needs to be done differently or does it need to just be done for longer and it's a generational change? Well, I think it's a mix of both. I think in terms of generational change, we do need to foster a different culture where, you know, we're promoting acceptance and identifying racism as soon as we see it. Um, but also more needs to be done in the sense of involving young people of color and from multicultural communities in these campaigns or government policies or, you know, giving them a seat on the table to say, hey, the Discrimination Act or some a policy around discrimination is outdated because of this experience that I had yeah. or this experience somebody else had. How can we change that? So giving them you know an opportunity to be part of that process, I think in that sense more needs to be done. But I think that eventually, like you said, comes with time and changing the generational gap um, and the ways of thinking of a generation. And people like yourself need need to have the bravery to lead that charge. Because that voice has to come from people from that background who are Australians who have had that lived experience because you guys, you know, you know, you know exactly how that feels to grow up that way and to be who you are. And yeah, it's so impressive that you've managed to overcome all those feelings that you've had to deal with and grow into such an evolved young man who feels like that's your cross to bear. And I get it because you've derived a huge amount of meaning in your life and direction that's come out of pain. And I've experienced something similar. And I think for many of us to have a fire like that, it has to come from that source. So I get it, but it's extremely admirable. Do you feel like you've missed out on anything from your young years by feeling like you have to achieve so much and you have to do all these different kinds of jobs? Perhaps you you don't have as much leisure time or... Uh, you're not chilling out so much <laughs> except for now like obviously you have to stay at home but yeah well i think initially when i started um i did feel a little you know like i was missing out of my younger years or you know do i really have to do this now can i not do this later um but eventually when you start meeting people and hearing their stories it just became a massive passion I'd almost say it became an addiction yeah. just to see change yeah. and be part of this on a regular basis. Yeah, I get that. Stay busy in that sense. I get that. Yeah. 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 Um, so what do you think are the biggest issues facing young men in particular right now? So multiculturally, but then everyone. Well, I think if we're talking about in the sense of multicultural communities, it's still the taboo and stigmas that exist. You know, there's a lot of 
unrealistic high expectations put on a lot of young people of color um, or, or multicultural men, where it's just like, you have to be this sort of person by this age, you need stability. And if you have any hiccups or issues there, that's your fault, you're mm. a failure. Yeah. So I think that mentality and culture needs to change quite extensively. Um, but in terms like in general of young men's mental health, I think we need to advocate for it further. You know, I think we talk about mental health, but men's mental health is a conversation I don't think we have enough. Obviously, we have like highly you know, successful campaigns like Movember, but Movember, for instance, you just think of it as raising awareness for men's mental health by growing moustache. Yeah. But there's so much more to that. They're a year long organization and charity that have different events mm. for men's mental health, but we don't know that. We just think it's like a like a single month event. So I think in that sense, creating the culture that we need to talk about on a regular basis, you know, pairing up young uh, young men with, you know, older men with like wisdom and experience and age is important because mentorship, I think, is very valuable, not in the sense of just professional settings, but also the personal aspect of being able to share mutual experiences and the struggles you went through and how you were resilient in that sense. So I think in that degree, I think we need to have more dialogues and more collaboration in that sense. Mm. And what is, what do you think that looks like? Is that more TV programs? Is it more in-person events? Is it just a matter of time with platforms like my own, adding up with other ones and slowly the culture shifts? How do you think we practically get that conversation out there even more and then more so than conversation, actual real-life impact as well? Yeah, well, I think it's a combination of all of them. And I think we need to move forward with every single one of these um, you know, examples that you put, you know, going at a very high intensity, you know, for instance, your platform allows young men to come on and talk about, you know, mental health and be vulnerable, which is stereotypically something we shouldn't be doing, you know, we're, we're, we're told to, you know, not be weak, not show vulnerability, but there's a story to tell. So I think that's very important. And I think all, a lot of these organizations need to partner up with charities or not-for-profits that prioritize men's uh, mental health, not only in educational institutions, but also in the workplace to show, hey, how, how are the people going? Like, what's their mental health status? Have you actually checked? Have you given them mental health, you know, time off, especially during the pandemic? Yeah. So I think I, and not just conversation. Not just for one day a year as a throwaway, sort of a gimmick thing to tick a box, but to really start to care. But I think we're talking about massive cultural shifts in the workplace, within families, within different multicultural backgrounds. Like these are very big pillars that we're trying to move and doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it, but just like um, you and your self-confidence, it's not going to happen overnight. And I think it's just a sum of all the actions that we take every day and connecting with each other and taking responsibility in our own lives to be the kinds of young men who are promoting these messages, even just within our own friendship groups, being the the guy who says occasionally, hey guys, if anyone's struggling, you know, I've been going through this lately and you can always talk to me. Like that's enough because that starts to create that shift and then the ripple effect is greater than anyone can imagine. And then hopefully by the time our sons are growing up, they're having a different experience at school where they're being told from the get-go that it's okay to feel the way that they feel. 
For sure. I think it just it just requires one person to open up, especially with my experience in, in high school. You know, I, I had one conversation with a close group of friends just out of the blue, just opening up. And that caused the ripple effect that, you know, essentially changed my life and made me want to change and get out of the rut and the hole that I was in with, you know, feeling social, socially anxious and not understanding my identity. So, again, I think one conversation, just someone taking initiative really does make you know, lifelong changes. How do you feel about being Jahin now? Well, I'm definitely much more fulfilled and content with who I am, my identity, my values. But I also know I want to be much more. I, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm like, yes, I'm a hundred percent fulfilled as my identity. Um, I want to use that as a, you know, as a catapult to ensure that I can. It's that it's not. It's not. It's not just like a statistic or a story that's just there. Yes. Yeah. I, I want it to be a story that that's you know like you said, create a ripple effect amongst other migrant kids or you know, young men to show that even in the most dire situations, you can come out of it, yeah. you know, and you can open up and resonate with it. Yeah, and your story's ongoing and it's a very powerful one and it's a blessing to be able to share it. And the silver lining that comes out of experiencing so much pain and hardship is that you then have the opportunity to be able to help others if you find the bravery and the drive to want to be vocal about it. So I really respect what you do. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Youngblood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. You can sign up to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.